Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 16th, 2017, and this is episode 2025 of the Survival Podcast. What? Did, was it yesterday that Jack said it was 2000? It was, it was episode 2024 yesterday. I even... When I encoded the episode, it has a little EPI dash, you know, number so that they'll all sort in your, you know, podcast player, right? It, it even said 2024. I fubbed the blog and put 2025 in the blog uh, title for the post that went with it. And then when I did the intro, I'm always looking at the notes. If you, if you want to know what I look at to do the show, when you look at the show notes that you see on the blog, that's it. That's all the notes that I use. Um, so today is actually episode 2025, and it is a different one from yesterday, because yesterday was Lister Calls. Today is Expert Council Q&A, the Monster Show of the Week. And boy, do we have a great one today. I'm kind of excited about this one. I've got a bunch of stuff, and I think we're fulfilling our commitment to you here on Survival Podcast this week big time, and bringing you the most diverse array of topics that you can find on any single show, but yet they all relate to personal liberty, independence, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and liberty. And that's, that's what we're doing here. We bring you the things that actually allow those things in your life, enable those things in your life, and empower those things in your life. But yet we do it with incredible diversity. We don't sit here with every other day a show about storing water. Like, okay, we have lots of info on that. It's pretty easy to do. Go store your water. Here's a back-to-basics show once in a while. But let's talk about all kinds of things. Like, what today? Okay. Where do you hear the diversity of today's show? I have for you grazing land from brambles into pasture from full-time farmer Darby Simpson. I have pricing a niche product in a rural market. And if this is a unique question, it's not just a straight pricing question for Nicole Sauce. And I'll be throwing a little bit of my opinion on the end of this one. Uh, we have dealing with food allergies from Gary Collins. We have considerations when thyroid issues running your family from old Dr. Bones. We have installing a light bar on your vehicle, you know, pick a light bar the right way from Charles the Humble Mechanic. I've seen people install things like that the wrong way, and I've watched them burn wiring harnesses and white smoke come out. It's not good. It's not good. Charles will tell you exactly how to do this the right way. Dealing with ambrosia beetles. Ambrosia sounds like a good thing, but not when it's a beetle with Nick Ferguson. Three common 401k questions from our financial guru, John Pugliano. I have a, a, a final segment that I'm calling a guest appearance by Vin Armani. I actually have about a 13-minute segment of Vin's show from this week on cryptocurrency. I'm going to start off with the story that made me pull this into today. I was actually going to cover this story on Monday myself um, on this coming Monday show, so episode 2026, Jack, not 25. Get the count right. Um, but Vin covered it so perfectly uh, this Monday that I was like, I, I'm just going to use his segment. I was going to bring his segment on Monday. And then this came in for me today from someone about Germany saying they're going to do a cryptocurrency and how they clearly don't understand what Bitcoin is. And this is big news for Nevada. Big, big news. And I think a lot of people are not even aware that this happened. This is, this is amazing. And it is, it is watching a legislature, a state legislature, and the governor gets sucker punched 
into unanimously voting for and passing a law that benefits nobody except the people. It's unbelievable. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Let's take a look at the this year in history. We're up to the year 8 now. The year 8 A.D. We have one contribution today to the TSP Wiki for the year that was uh, segment, and it is Meanwhile on the German Frontier, contributed by David Verne. The ongoing ro revolt in Dalmatia will continue throughout this year with Rome making steady progress. But trouble is brewing in the north. Publius Vars has been governing Germania for a year, and he has been collecting taxes and dispensing justice. Executions are common. Varus seems to think that the area is filled with people who willingly wish to become Roman citizens and doesn't consider that it isn't the case while holding court. Trade is flourishing, and the tribes are providing auxiliary units to serve in the Roman army. But it's a simmering hotbed underneath. Varus's lieutenant is a German prince called Arminius. When he was a child, he was taken to Rome as a hostage to ensure his father's good behavior. Arminius became a Roman citizen and served with distinction in the Roman military. Varus trusts him completely. Arminius has been uniting the German tribes in a secret alliance against Rome and is currently biding his time. My take by David Verne. In ancient German law, only two crimes could merit a death penalty, desertion and rape. All other crimes were settled with restitution, commonly livestock being paid to the victim. This difference in legal customs was a major factor in stirring up the tribes. Each tribe was incredibly independent, and it's amazing that Arminius managed to get them to agree to the alliance. There were some tribal chiefs who didn't want to go along with it, including Arminius's uncle, but many of their followers ignored them and joined anyway. See, let me tell you what you're actually seeing here. Because most people won't understand what you're seeing here. You're seeing an anarchy converted into a state. These tribes were, were independent. They had their own rules and the way that they did things. And they were like the most minarchist thing you could have. They were you know, a hair's breadth from a true anarchy. Rules without rulers. The fact that one could be conscripted into military service and killed for desertion, that makes it a state. Okay, And it probably always wasn't that way. And it amazes me, one thing I found interesting here, is that if you were convicted of rape, you got killed. But I noticed that the word murder didn't show up there. So if I killed somebody, I don't get the death penalty, I have to give their widow some oxes or something. 
Maybe it is just that murder, as we think of the word murder, wasn't that common among these tribes. Maybe it just wasn't that common. I don't know. Or maybe, like, it happened all the time, but it was like two guys agreeing to fight each other, and that was a duel, and that wasn't considered murder. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. But the bigger lesson in this is, well, we're Rome. And look, everything's great. We have bread and circuses. And there's trade, and people have jobs, and you get a lot of benefit by being a Roman citizen. All of these people around us, they want to be just like us. They like us. Yeah, we had to kick some heads in, but they all love us. The savages were underneath the belly waiting to strike. And they remained unseen because the people in charge, the old guard, were so sure that everybody loved them, that everybody wanted to be like them, that their system was the best, and that there couldn't be an alternative that anybody would really want. Does, does, does that make you think of the way anybody seems to think about themselves and government? How about the way it seems like everybody in government seems to think about themselves? I'm just saying, the more things change, the more they actually stay the same. The underlying human element of attempting to control others is always there, and actually believing that your way is the best way, and therefore it is okay to impose it on others. That's how we've gotten into the mess that we're in in the world today. That's how we took a nation that was one of the closest things to an anarchy that ever existed in a state form in the early United States and turned it into one of the most bureaucratically bloated, oppressive governments on planet Earth. And most of the oppression in our country today, guys, you know where it comes from. It's not from the federal government. They do plenty, but it's not really the most oppressive. It's the cities and the counties. The cities and the counties are doing the most oppression to people today, followed by the states and then the federal government. If you could just get rid of all of the things that the cities and the counties force onto people's lives and leave it to the state and the federal state, it still wouldn't be perfect. But you'd be surprised how much liberty would just magically appear. I live it every day because my county doesn't really care and doesn't do much, and I live in an unincorporated area. The difference in my freedom and liberty here and the liberty and freedom of people two miles away from me is unbelievable, even in a state like Texas, because the more things change the more they stay the same. The more government, the more tyranny. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me, I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment. And we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. All right, and on that note, let's go ahead and get into our first uh, question for an expert council member. I have a question here for expert council Darby Simpson. 
on grazing land that's like all full of brambles and saplings and stuff like that, trying to get it into pasture, like how to do that without using nasty chemicals and exactly what to do to turn that land into something that actually is a beneficial landscape for grazing animals. Darby, take it away. Hello once again, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. This week, I've got a question from Josh, who is on the hunt for some land. He's looking to buy some property. And uh, long term, he's thinking about, you know, grazing cattle uh, using intensive rotational grazing methods. But he's running into a problem in that a lot of the properties he's finding, um, they, they've got land that hasn't been used in a long time. And they're full of brambles and tree saplings. So his basic question is, in these neglected pastures, um, you know, how is he supposed to go about dealing with, uh, you know, controlling these, these different brambles and saplings and things of that nature? So uh, to give you a few more details on, on uh, what Josh is, is thinking here, you know, uh, his, his goal is to try and and just use grazing and not herbicides to uh, to control these things. And in his email, he notes that uh, he's got a concern that if he gives his pastures, you know, 60 to 90 days rest time uh, to allow the pasture to come back and have, you know, sufficient uh, grasses out there for the animals to eat, that the, the brambles are going to, you know, sprout back up in, in that time frame and replenish and, and basically he's going to have to constantly, you know, go behind the cattle uh, with a mower – uh, or goats or sheep or something to uh, control these these things that he doesn't want out there. So um, Josh mentions uh, he's you know seen some articles uh, where people have had success um, mowing their pasture uh, you know immediately as these like brambles start to come back up and um, you know basically knock them down and he he's really wanting to know you know uh, how to go about things here and and take care of that so Josh let me um, let me be honest here I, fortunately uh, I have not had to deal with this exact situation here on my place because everything we've started grazing was a um, a traditional row crop field that we have planted with a perennial grass legume mix specifically for beef cattle so I'm going to give you some advice that I've heard other people talk about and that I would personally use. Now, ironically, um, God willing, I'm going to be fencing off an old pasture area on our farm yet this spring to put my cows on, uh, and it is in this very condition. I mean, we've got trees out there, not just saplings, uh, but actual trees and huge, huge areas of of brush and briars, you know, things that cattle would never, ever be able to get through. So if you get a place like that, you've got to go out and, and brush hog it to give the grasses and legumes that are there a chance to succeed and come up. And then obviously you can, you can knock things down with the cattle. Um, one thing you mentioned though, is a 60 to 90 day rest period. I don't know anyone using that kind of rest period in you know, uh, rotational grazing, um, at, at least in, in my personal network, certainly here we do not do that. This time of year, uh, when the grass is growing like it is here in the Midwest, and, and to be clear, you didn't give me the region you're in, so I, I don't know if you're, you know, out west or something, this could be totally different. But here in May and June, if you're not hitting the same paddock every 30 to 35 days, the grass is so out of control 
that you'll have, you know, uh, completely brown carbonous material out there and nothing green because it's basically matured and gone to seed and it's nothing that the cows are going to want to eat. So we've really got to stay on top of it this time of year. Now, as it gets drier, we do slow down, but we're still not in that 60 to 90 day rest period. That's a really, really long rest period and it might be region specific, but that's certainly not uh, what we're doing here in, in our context. So, be careful with how long you think you need to let ground rest. You want grass to be in that, that high growth adolescent stage. You, you don't want the cows eating little bitty baby grass and you don't want the cows eating really old geriatric grass. You want them eating grass that is, you know, uh, six, eight, ten, twelve plus inches tall. Uh, six would actually be a little bit short. When, when you, leave an area you you want your your grass to still be a minimum of three to four inches tall and really no more than six inches tall and then if it's between six inches and two feet if it's lush and green and doesn't have a ton of seed heads on it that's good grazing and that's really what you're shooting for is to to use those four-legged lawnmowers to keep the grass in that high growth adolescent age uh, uh point so uh, just a little side note there before we get too deep into this. Now, we do have some briars and, and wild rose specifically, which is something that unfortunately is native to Indiana. Um, and I don't know why they call it a rose. It doesn't have any nice looking rose petals on it. It's just a nasty, ugly briar that comes up. And honestly, the cows don't do anything with that. So you basically, you got it. You've got to chop those down. Um, now, what you're talking about, you know, mowing it all the time, you might have to do that for a while to get it under control uh, in conjunction with the cows to get the grasses and legumes healthy and strong and vibrant so that they will begin to choke out a lot of these things. But I don't think that you're just going to go out there and do this with cows uh, and no other tools based on what you're telling me. Now, with some of your saplings, be careful. Because certain saplings here we want. I mean, I, I've got some things that have popped up in certain areas, and I'm going to leave them. I mean, if I if I see a, a nice looking a hard maple tree take off, or an oak tree, a beech tree, um, you know, anything that's in that hardwood family that's native to my area, I'm going to leave it. I've got some uh, low lying pasture that gets really wet, and I've got some poplar tulip trees, which is the softest of the hardwoods. But it's very uh, quick growing. It likes wet areas, and it will absorb and evaporate a lot of moisture in some of these wet areas. Plus, it gives the cows shade. So, be careful not to just go out there and kill absolutely every sapling. Be selective. If Mother Nature is giving you some free trees, take her up on it. Uh, really, what you kind of want to go for here is is more of a savanna. You want to have this grassland with some shade. There's there's actually some studies that show grasses grow faster with shade so uh don't don't kill all the saplings obviously if you got junk trees you know uh, honey, honey locusts that have thorns on them that are going to be really really problematic for cows because they will rub on those and they will poke their eyes and they will go blind or get pink eye um, things of that nature you, you got to get rid of and i think early on you're going to have to do some you know, some selective bush hogging. Uh, you maybe have to use a machete, some shovels to get down to the roots. And I know you said you don't want to use herbicides. If you've got some really big, nasty briar plants that are coming back, you know, look, mow them down and go out there with a squirt bottle 
of a poison and kill that one plant. I, that's not the end of the world. I do not like using herbicides at all in any way, shape, or form. But if you've got one specific, you know, variety of, of plant out there that's just giving you hell, well, you know, nuke it. Get rid of it if that's what you have to do. But I think you'll probably be surprised that uh, some, some bush hogging early on, that's going to get reduced over time. If you manage your animals properly, if you've got the right stocking density, if you've got the, the right rest periods of how much they're, you know, grazing effectively is going to knock this stuff down and, and really uh, put it back in its place, it's going to take some time to build some soil. Your soil may be so bad that initially you do need a 60-day rest period. This really gets into a, a lot more than we have time to go in here, uh, Josh, is, you know, the proper stocking densities and... Uh, how much land you're trying to cover with how many animals and what your live weight is, what time of year it is, what grasses you have out there, what legumes you have out there. If you're going to, you know, add seeds to, uh, the land base or if you just want to try and work with what's in the soil bank today, this brings up a whole host of questions which can really, you know, change and alter some of this advice. So, you know, please keep that in mind. Um, we can only get so deep here in, in a limited amount of time. So, uh, any, anyhow, Josh, that's really all I have to offer. I would love it though if you do buy a piece of land and you start going through this, follow up with me, shoot me an email, even if it's, you know, 12 months, 24 months down the road let me know uh what you did and, and how it worked and like i said i'm going to be doing this here so I, i've got a lot to learn in this particular area and i will be more than happy to share it as i go through it uh if you guys want to you know uh follow up with what i'm doing please head out and uh, check out the podcast i do each week uh you can find it on itunes or at permaculturevoices.com under grass-fed life we spend an hour every week going through this very type of stuff. Uh, anything from, you know, how to manage animals to how to market products. Uh, if you're interested in learning how to farm for profit, whether that be full time or part time, if you want a farmstead, consider coming out to the Farm Business Essentials Workshop that I'm putting on with Diego Footer here in central Indiana at the end of October. There's more information on that at permaculturevoices.com as well. Tickets are on sale now, and they have begun selling. Uh, we've run this course twice already, sold it out both times, and looking forward to running it again this October. To learn more about me, you can also head out to darbysimpson.com and check out the free blog articles. As always, everyone, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Have a wonderful weekend, and take care. You know, and I would, I definitely would add to everything Darby said there to, uh, to, if you're, you're looking to graze land at all, but especially if you're taking on land that's got some forests, saplings, trees, whatever, that, that you actually want to open up, look at the work Greg Judy's done. Um, I've seen videos of his where they put these cattle into, it's basically, I'd call it forest, but it's like young growth scrub, you know, maybe five, six to ten year regrowth. Most of the trees are about as big as your arm, and you couldn't walk into it. You couldn't get in it. I, I mean, you, you would, you'd have to be in there you know, with a machete and a chainsaw and people helping you to crawl through the damn thing. They put the cattle up, you know, and they basically fenced the cattle into the area, and the cow's not going to go in there. And the next day, it looks like a park in there. It's pretty amazing. So check out some of Greg Judy stuff. You can just go to YouTube and search for Greg Judy, and you'll find all kinds of presentations by him. And I don't remember exactly which one that was, or I'd link to it for you. 
The next question I have is on pricing a niche product in a rural market for Nicole Sauce. And it also involves some complex accounting-type questions. And I'm going to come back and tell you why. Maybe you don't really need to think that hard. Uh, but, Nicole, take it away. Howdy, fellow TSPers. This is Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee answering an expert counsel question from Mike in Banff, New Hampshire. Mike asks, I'm looking for advice on pricing the output of one homestead enterprise for use as a value-added input in another enterprise. Details. I'm considering starting a homestead bakery to sell baked goods at local farmers markets under New Hampshire's cottage industry exemption for unlicensed home production. I'm planning on growing heritage wheat varieties on my property for use in the baked goods. When calculating the bread price, I need to include the cost of the homegrown wheat. Should my wheat farming enterprise sell the wheat to the baking enterprise at a wholesale cost and show a profit or as a break-even pass-through cost? As with your coffee business, I will be selling a niche product in a rural area, and I don't want to undervalue my products to ensure the cost of production are adequately covered. Thanks, Nicole, and thanks, Jack, for the great work. Regards, Mike in Bath. Well, Mike, thanks for the question. This one's a little tricky because I'm not you, and I don't live where you live, and so I don't have a good handle on your market. So first of all, I'll put in the usual disclaimer. I am not a tax accountant, and I don't play one on my podcast, so any structure that you're setting up for your farm to baked good company to whatever else you're you're doing and how they pass resources back and forth should be designed with the assistance of professional advice. This is one of those things where I know it can be difficult to prioritize this money at the beginning, but it pays off so much in the long run to have your tracking in order from the beginning and not have to wade through piles of receipts and also to make sure you avoid any potential trouble if you were to be audited. Now, in your email, it seems as if you've already had some advice on how to set up your entities. So I am answering your question with that assumption in mind. Next up, free markets don't lie. So you will have your answer pretty quickly about pricing once you get this up and running. And one thought I had is it takes a while to grow wheat. So why not source another organic resource and start doing the bread right away? Because you can start seeing what the bread can command at your market and tell a very similar story and say, we're doing it this way for now, but pretty soon we're going to have the actual wheat from our actual farm. That's just a thought I had. So from a high level perspective, my philosophy is that it's best to track and integrate your time into any product you're, you're selling. And I mean all of your time because your time is valuable. And if you're not using it to make a profit, then you should be using it for you. At the same time, market forces will impact your ability to sell your product at the price you set. So first up, some research is in order. And this is how I would do this. I would research and gather information. I would track your time for the farm and I would track your time and expenses for the bakery. And based on what your sale price is, See if this is all working the way you need it to and tweak what needs to be tweaked. So first out, let's talk about the research. What I do is gather information on what pricing looks like for both premium wheat and premium baked goods made from local wheat in your area. And if nobody's doing anything like what you do right now, which is awesome for you because then you're just differentiating against Wonder Bread, Go find a similar market with someone doing something like what you're doing. Take note of the prices that they're able to command 
what volume they're able to sell, what their marketing strategy is like. How are they telling the story of their product? And then are they using any other distribution channels besides farmers markets? Because if you can break out of just the farmers market, you have a bigger potential re- reach. So with that research in hand, what you can do is develop the best framework for your business and it'll save you some potentially unfortunate mistakes that somebody else has hopefully already made. A caution though. While you don't want to reinvent the wheel in a business like this, if you don't have to, the pricing and processes you discover may or may end up, may or may not end up being what's best for your business in your market. So keep an open mind through your launch and track what's working best so that you can tap into any hidden opportunities and not leave money on the table. Second, track your time and expenses for the farm. And set your wholesale and retail prices for your wheat based on as if you were selling to a bakery or a person who's not you, right? So your wholesale would be your bakery price and your retail would be what are you going to sell it to Joe Blow on the street? Use that same rate for your bakery. It's really that simple. I don't like doing work that I don't get paid for. And when I sell something at cost to another one of my businesses, what that means is all the time I put into that is not being paid. So for example, we run a newspaper called the Center Hill Sun. And when they buy holler roasts to give to clients as thank you gifts, they pay retail. And that money then pays me for the time I spent roasting the coffee. So that makes me much happier when I'm roasting the coffee. Because when I'm roasting coffee for free, I get grumpy. And then third, make sure you track your time and expenses for the bakery and see if it pencils out with the price you know you can sell your product at. If your pricing is viable in the market, then you're good to go. If you find it isn't viable, consider changing something, either the story that you're telling about your baked goods or maybe the materials that you use. Just keep an open mind. I, I sell eggs in my area for more than anybody else can. And I think it's just because I tell the story of my chickens and, and people know me and I have a limited amount and they're willing to pay that price for my eggs. It, it doesn't hurt that my eggs, when put next to other other farmers' eggs, have a much darker orange yolk. But if I can do that here, you can sell your bread for a, a high price there that it should be for the amount of care and time that you're putting into it. So you may wonder why I don't say just do the pass-through slash at-cost model. Well, it's because I've grown a little wheat, and I, I I don't know how it grows up there, but here I had to work my ass off. And if I'm going to work my ass off, I'm going to darn well get paid for that. If my efforts are not going to be covered by what happens with the product I produce, I lose motivation to do the work because it's not getting me anywhere. I've just added a bunch of farming work to my week to sell to people who are not my family and friends at no profit. Ugh. I mean, that would be very demotivating for me. So keep an open mind and go for the best price for your product that actually pays you for your work and see what your market will bear. And if that is not working, look at if your marketing strategy needs to change and you need to tell a different story or if your product does. I'm guessing that you can find people willing to buy your more expensive baked goods made from local organic grains, especially if you tell your story really well. But, you know, if they're not willing to do it, maybe keep your awesome wheat for you and your family and friends and source a cheaper organic product for your baked goods. Also, 
Consider re-listening to episode 1677-1677. That's Grant Schultz on farm scale permaculture. He actually talks about function stacking on the farm, and it, it's a good one to listen to if you're looking to leverage multiple things. Okay, guys, keep sending in those questions. I can take them on homesteading entrepreneurship, marketing, web development, as well as on working with or getting around public policymakers and local governments to increase liberty in your life and community. Mike, thanks again for your question, and I hope your your bakery gets up and running soon. And Jack, thank you so much for everything you do for us. And TSP, go out and make the most of your weekend. So, yeah, I, I really agree with some of Nicole's advice here. Uh, I'm going to start with this intercompany billing stuff. I think you're making your life way too complicated. In the end, you're going to file a tax form with, with, a, with, a, with a, you know, a Schedule C long form, and probably if you're doing farm activities, a Schedule F. You don't need to interbill the companies because in the end, the, all the income goes back to you. All right, um, intercompany and interdepartmental billing has some unique advantages for some tax strategies. But if you have to ask about doing it, you don't know how to take advantage of them. And I have to tell you this. I probably wouldn't know how to take advantage of them at the scale you're talking about. I wouldn't. We did stuff like this with some of the companies I ran with Neil Franklin where you could, could reduce the profit of one company by charging something over to another company. Nothing about this is illegal, by the way. Um, and then basically taking a company that um, was going to have a, 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 a loss and make the loss a little less, but still a loss. So that had then bore no tax consequences and reduced the tax liability of the other. Um, this is done all the time in corporate America. Um, as long as you can justify the charge. Now, you have to be able to justify the charge, like what services were rendered. Well, we actually had services rendered that you can legitimately put a price on the tag, but we were running all of them through one holding corporation, and that holding corporation didn't really operate at a profit because it is, existed as an umbrella. That's tax strategy, and we had damn good accountants to make sure that we were doing everything right so that if we had ever been audited, they could be, that could be handled no problem. But you don't need to worry about that. You just need to worry about tracking all your expenses, and your accountant, any, any accountant worth their salt, can tell you where, which form to put those expenses on. So make sure you track all the expenses And definitely you want to you know, look for the value of your work. Where I really agree with Nicole, this whole concept of, well, I'm going to grow wheat, and eventually I'm going to have wheat, and then I'm going to mill wheat into flour, and then I'm going to make flour into baked goods, and then I'm going to sell the baked goods. Do you know what I hear when I hear that? I don't hear a grand plan. I hear, here's how I can put a whole bunch of work in front of myself and delay actually going into business. Is it a great story? We grow our own wheat on our own farm, and we make our own bread. Yeah, I'll just bet you, if your area is a good area for growing wheat, there are local growers that you could be sourcing product from right now and get the hell in the actual money on the ground part of the business. And then you can start talking to your customers and saying, we are now gearing up to grow our own wheat. And I bet you this is, the, this is what you're going to hear from your customer. Well, then the price should go down, right? I, I bet you didn't expect that. Well, but, I mean, this is how human... So what you're telling this person is, instead of having to buy wheat, we're going to produce our own. So obviously you can produce it for less 
that you can buy it for, right? That's how people think. The answer is maybe. It depends. What scale are you operating at? What scale are you operating at? What do you do and what do you specialize in? See, this is why I'm all for let's get wheat, let's make stuff, let's develop a sales channel. Okay? Because then we can go back and learn to farm and figure out how much scale we can do and we can figure out if we're producing our wheat for less than we're buying it for. And if we're not, we hate wheat. We hate producing wheat now. Now we want to go figure out something else to produce. But this is just like, same way Nick Ferguson and I, I you know, kind of advise people when they're just getting into gardening. Your first year, buy compost, buy fertilizer, organic of course, put in beds, buy plants from a nursery, stick them in the ground, take care of them. Why? That's a skill set. Learn to grow your plants. Learn to lay out a bed. Learn to look for pests. Learn to deal with having the garden the first year. Your next season... Learn to start seeds, and then you already know how to grow a garden. You know, and, and you might start composting that second year too, or you might start composting that first year, but you're just building compost. You're not really using it yet, because each one of these is a skill set. Running a business is a skill set. So if the business's financial stake is selling baked goods, then go sell baked goods, and then when you've built a sales channel. You have a target of production, and you can see if that works, and then you can run the numbers against each other, and this is how this works. Unless you can produce it for less in total cost to yourself and sell it for at least the same, or you can produce it for less and sell it for more because the story does sell better, and I don't know that it will. But if it does, well, then you do it. If, you ha if it costs you more to produce it than you can buy the equivalent product for, for that has, still has a good story and it's still a quality product, you buy the product because your business is the bakery. It's not growing the wheat. You're not in the wheat growing business in this model. You're in the bakery model. You're in the baked goods model. right? So I'm, I'm not crapping on your idea. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying don't let it be an excuse to not get it going right now. Test the financial model. It, 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 this is a very low, at under cottage food, are you kidding? It's a very low entry point to see if it's going to work. Develop that skill set as a baker, as a, as a producer, developing a channel, all of that stuff. And here's what I say about pricing your product. Price it exactly where you're comfortable with it, and then go up 10 to 15 to 20%, and see if the market bears it. Because you can always drop your price. You should be a little bit uncomfortable with your product's price as being a little bit too high. If you're not, you're probably underpriced. But again, the market will be the ultimate truth teller. Uh, next, I have a question. We're talking about food here. How about food allergies uh, from Gary Collins? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss all things primal lifestyle, paleo diet, living off the grid, and just good old simple life simplification. Uh, guys, make sure to check out my new book, Going Off the Grid. And also, I have some free off-the-grid gifts for you guys at primalpowermethod.com forward slash off-grid resources if you're interested in that. Um, today's question, another one on food sensitivities or food allergies. Um, I get this quite a bit as well. Uh, this one's a little different in the sense that some of it's obvious, some of it is not. But in order to truly understand what intolerances you have. You do have to do a strict paleo diet for 30 days and then try and implement those foods that cause issues back in one at a time. 
it, it seems hereditary because his brother has very similar food allergies or intolerances. A dead giveaway is the hives in the mouth. That's usually a true blue food allergy. But since he is still consuming grains and dairy, which are both highly inflammatory in the lower GI, this could cause leaky gut syndrome. I don't have enough time to go in that. You could search it. There's a ton of articles on that, um, which just basically causes uh, perforations in the the colon and small and large intestine. And it also causes a imbalance between good and bad gut bacteria, which causes a whole host of food allergies and sensitivities. So I would recommend do do strict paleo, no beans, no dairy, no grains for 30 days and try and implement the foods that give him a problem. I would also recommend getting a prick allergy test, is which where they prick the skin on your back, and they use a a basically a solution of the food, and it will tell you whether you have an intolerance. It's not perfect, but I like that better than the blood test. It's far more accurate. Also, he has a problem with vegetables that are unboiled, and he's worried about just steam them. If you steam vegetables, you're fine. You can you do not lose that much of the nutrients in there as opposed to boiling them because it ends up in the water. Or you could just simply make a soup out of the water, or you know add you know add your meat to it. And like I said, make a soup or a stew. Real real basic. If you want to truly test the food allergy, another one is to rub the fencing food on your weak hand or weak. Uh, inside of your wrist before you go to bed, do it for two to three days. And if you're truly have an allergy to it, you should get welts right there. And also that the bananas and avocados, believe it or not, those are two highly, uh, allergy food, uh, foods that we are allergic to today. People are pretty blown away by the avocados, but a lot of people have allergies to avocados and bananas. So I hope that helps, uh, you know what? I, I, one last thing I would also do, since he has a problem with the the, uh, the unboiled or uh, you know um, unsteamed vegetables, fruits, you could have a hereditary problem with GERD, which is gastric uh, reflux disease. This could be due to that is genetic as well. So it's your LES, your lower esophageal sphincter, not working correctly and not closing all the way. And anytime you eat a lot of fat or fiber, it will cause you to get heartburn and it can be pretty bad. But I, I know that covered a whole bunch of things, but with what he's told me, there's a lot going on and there's just not one solution. I hope that helps guys. Um, it's complicated. Food allergies changes you age to and intolerances. Uh, it, it just, there's times when something will bug me, I'll eat it four weeks later and it doesn't bother me. So, and watch the eggs. Uh, that's another thing I've found. If you eat too many eggs and you continue to eat them all the time, there has been instances I've found where you will actually build up uh, kind of an allergy to eggs. I don't know why it's eggs specifically, but it just seems to happen that if you eat eggs continuously, like every single day, multiple times, that you build up some sort of intolerance to them. So I would maybe take the eggs out as well. Again, hope that helps. Thanks a lot, guys. Good stuff from Gary Collins. Next, I have a question for Old Doc Bones on, you know, being prepared to deal with thyroid issues if you have, you know, 
is Gary was just talking about hereditary uh, risks with thyroid issues here for Doc Bones now. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with close to a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Sam, who writes, What do I do for thyroid problems to prepare for after the you-know-what hits the fan and make sure of the diagnosis before? Thyroid problems run in my family. My mother always has problems finding a doctor that gets the correct diagnosis. I have an acquaintance that spent a lot of money and time going through several doctors. Finally, an endocrinologist diagnosed Hashimoto's. My basal body temperature is about 96 degrees. Sam, the thyroid gland is a small butterfly-shaped organ that sits at the front of the neck, lying around and against the front of the windpipe. The gland is usually larger in women who are more likely to have thyroid problems than men. About 20 million Americans of all races, sexes, and ethnicities, however, have some form of thyroid disease, which can be related to, among other things, high or low hormonal levels, dietary deficiencies, tumors, and autoimmune disorders. Thyroid conditions usually involve the production of either too little or too much hormone. Worldwide, the most common cause is iodine deficiency, which is avoided in the United States by the widespread availability of iodized salt. It should be assumed that, in long-term survival, this could be an issue even here, so having some iodized salt could prevent problems like goiters. It should be noted that a decrease in function of the thyroid due to iodine deficiency remains a leading cause of preventable intellectual disability in kids. In places where iodine deficiency isn't a problem, the most common cause of low thyroid, also called hypothyroidism, is something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You mentioned that. An autoimmune disease where something causes the body to attack the gland's function. Hyperthyroidism, where excessively high amounts of thyroid hormone, occurs when the gland produces excessive amounts of thyroid hormone. The most common cause of this being Graves' disease, another autoimmune disorder. Sam, we don't know enough about what causes an autoimmune disorder to develop to have a real potent preventative for either Graves' or Hashimoto's. You mentioned your acquaintance's problem, but didn't say the exact thyroid problem your mother has, so it's hard to give you specific advice. You mentioned you have a relatively low basal body temperature. Perhaps this could indicate that you might be at risk for hypothyroidism, but in and of itself is not enough to be able to make that statement. If a person requires thyroid replacement meds due to lack of natural production, it could be a problem if thyroid medications aren't available or run out, like in survival settings. In these circumstances, you might consider a number of desiccated bovine or porcine or porcine thyroid supplements available for stockpiling. Just Google desiccated thyroid supplement and you'll find them. Now, to tell whether these would work for a person with low thyroid levels would require your doctor to actually check thyroid levels in your body while on these supplements. It helps to have an understanding doctor who you can have an honest conversation with. This doctor might be willing to allow you to take a desiccated thyroid supplement for a short period of time and monitor your response to it. If your thyroid levels stay within normal range, it's worth storing. If your thyroid levels sink like a stone, well, it's not for you. From a dietary standpoint, you should avoid foods that depress thyroid function. These include cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, spinach, and cabbage. 
for people with elevated thyroid function, dietary restriction of nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, and other substances that alter metabolism is important to control these conditions. Vitamin C and B12 may have a beneficial effect, as well as L-carnitine. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, experience the joy you get by helping the elderly, that's me, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks. Uh, good luck with that, finding that doctor. I, I do think that maybe you might be able to have a private lab do that test for a very reasonable price. Uh, remember, we have, as a benefit to all of you folks that are part of the MSB, uh, discounts with a, with a company called Doctors Nutrition. And that's not really directly germane here. Um, but it's indirectly germane because Doctors Nutrition is, is a, a, a couple out in, in East Texas that use laboratory results to make recommendations for supplements uh, as far as which supplements you should be taking. Instead of, well, everybody should take this. Well, you don't know. You figure out what the people's levels are with laboratory testing, and then you supplement those things. And then, you know, 90 days later, you take the test again. And you see if the, the, the things that you're, you're supplementing for are being effectively responded to, like, you know, actually put science to nutrition. My point is, though, that they have labs that they work with that are very affordable, and you probably can get your own thyroid test done and see if these things work. Though I think that you'd have to, you, I don't give medical advice, man. I am not a doctor, and... Knowing exactly how much to use and when and which product, I'm not sure how you do that, um, but you can take a look at what Bones has said to take a look at and make your own decisions. But if you can't find a, a doctor willing to work with you and make a determination of whether horse thyroid uh, supplement will work for you or not, you may be able to go out and do it yourself. But again, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just saying that might be possible, and I really don't know if it's a good idea or not. Maybe Doc will listen to this one and follow up with his thoughts on that. Next, I have a question for Charles, the humble mechanic, on installing a light bar on, one, on a vehicle. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes from JR. He says he wants to install a light bar on his 2013 GMC Sierra. Can you explain or point me to a video of how to safely use a keyed voltage input into a relay to control the power to the light bar from my vehicle battery? I believe this is the safest way to accomplish this goal. Direct me in the right path, JR. All right, so yeah, you are on the right track. Running a light bar through a relay is definitely the way I would do it. And pretty much everything on modern vehicles with any kind of load is ran through either a relay or really more likely a vehicle control module. I have a suggestion about actually doing it a little bit different, but we'll talk about that later. Let's answer your question directly. So what we're looking for is a power source that when the key is not turned on on our vehicle, there's no power. Yet when we turn it to the accessory position or when we have the car running, we have power on that circuit. It's worth mentioning there's probably a million ways to set this up and to do this. We don't want to run the risk of doing any damage to our vehicle, to the component that we're installing, or have some sort of catastrophic thermal event. So the way I normally do this is I use something like a test light 
or a voltmeter or a power probe to find this circuit. You can buy a test light locally for 10 bucks. It's worth the investment. And after you're done with it, throw it in your trunk just in case you have some kind of weird issue with your car. You can at least check the fuses. With our ignition switched off and our test light clamp side hooked to the vehicle ground, let's open up the fuse panel and look for an empty fuse slot. When you find an empty fuse slot, make sure that it still has the terminals inside that opening. Oftentimes vehicles will have the same fuse panel no matter what the trim level is of the car. So the higher trim levels may have more fuses, but they'll still put the same fuse panel in. There may only be one terminal in this slot. There may be two terminals, but if there's not a fuse there, that's where we're going to focus. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna take our test light and we're gonna put the probe side on the terminal and see if it lights up. If it has two terminals, try it on one and then move it to the other and see if it lights up. With our key switched off, if it does not light up, that means that we don't have direct battery power to that terminal. Next, go ahead and turn your key on and do it again. If the light lights up, you have found your keyed circuit. So make note of that fuse location. And the reason I like to do it this way is because this is going to involve us not having to cut and splice into the factory harness. On Amazon, they sell something called an add a circuit. This will actually plug into that fuse location. You drop a fuse into the top of it and it has a wire that goes out. And that's great because again, we don't have to cut into the factory wiring harness. Now that we have our switched power source, it's time to wire up the relay. A relay is a device that allows us to use low current to control large current. And this will cause less wear on our switch, less wear on our component, and is generally an overall better way to do it. That's why most modern things use so many relays. Everything from interior lights to starters are typically controlled this way. Relays are very simple to understand. Inside of that little box is a tiny electromagnet. When we energize that by supplying power and ground to the 86 and 85 terminal, it energizes the magnet and pulls the switch closed so that connects power from 87 to 30 or 30 to 87, depending on which way you wire it. Now you can get really trick and really fancy and there's some cool stuff that you can do with relays, but let's keep it really simple for this lighting circuit. You're going to want to use a four prong relay. This is about as basic of a relay as it gets. And the cool thing is most relays will have the schematic right on the side. So you can follow that schematic for the relay. Now on the four pins, you're going to have an 85 pin, an 86 pin, an 87 pin, and a 30 pin. The 86 pin and the 85 pin are interchangeable with each other. The 87 pin and the 30 pin are also interchangeable with each other. And while you can mix them together, that's gonna make your relay not work. So knowing that there are a couple of options that you have, but typically the pin numbered 86 will be direct power from the battery. The 85 pin will be a ground connection. So it's going to go vehicle battery, wire to 86 pin, 85 pin will go directly to a good chassis ground. If at all possible, use the vehicle battery. The 30 pin will be your ignition switched power and the 87 pin will be your power out to the light. If you use that at a circuit, that connection at terminal 30 is already fused. A lot of people will also fuse the connection at 86 terminal just to play it safe. Either way, I think it's fine. If I were doing this, I would probably tend to overfuse it rather than underfuse it just to play it totally safe. You want those fuses as close to the power source as you can possibly get. 
So if you're going from the vehicle battery to your 86 terminal, try and put that fuse within maybe six inches to 10 inches of the vehicle battery. That way, if there's a problem down the wire, it's a much shorter path from the battery to the fuse. Now that you have that all wired up, we also need a switch. If I were doing this install, I would put the switch on the ground side of the relay. So I would go from the 85 terminal to my switch on the inside of the vehicle, then to the vehicle ground. Ground switching is the most common way modern cars switch things on. In fact, just about everything your engine control module controls is switched on the ground side. And we wanna make sure we have a high quality, strong ground for our light, otherwise it's probably not gonna work. Now, I mentioned that I would probably consider wiring this a different way. We are wiring up a big, bright light bar and we need to think about what we're gonna be using it for. Are we just gonna be using it for driving? Well, if that's the case, then ignition switch power is perfect. I'm assuming though that you are going to want the ability to turn this on and off. In fact, in a lot of states, having that on while you're driving is technically illegal. With that being said, all of the advice that I'm giving you today is of course for off-road use only. But I might consider doing it directly from the battery and always being the control with the switch in the interior. That way, if you have the car off and you need to flip your lights on for something, you can flip that LED light bar on with the car off or with the car on. Either way, it'll work. You know, if you have no interest in doing that, that's totally cool. I just want to throw that out there. That may be something you want to consider. You can also consider having a two relay setup with a three position switch. So for example, up would be the control for when the key is turned on and down might be the control for any time or add a second switch. There again is a million different ways you can do this. You could even use something really cool like a timer relay so that when you turn the ignition switch off with the light on, that LED light bar stays lit for two seconds, three seconds, five seconds. Most of them are adjustable. Uh, many modern higher-line cars have that. A lot of companies call it the coming home feature so that you can see into your driveway after you get out of your car and shut the ignition off. Just be careful because you definitely don't want to wire this up or set this up in any way that'll cause you to have a dead battery the next morning. But because this is such a bright light, the odds of it being on and you not noticing it, I think are a lot lower than perhaps wiring in a radar detector or maybe an aftermarket radio or an amplifier. Unless it's the brightest part of the day, you're probably gonna notice that that LED light bar is on. Oh, you could even add like a flasher relay or something really cool like that. Although I would definitely, definitely not use that on the road. That sounds like a one-way train to Ticketsville. People may assume that you're trying to impersonate an officer or a paramedic or something like that, fire rescue. Uh, so you may wanna steer clear of that. And also you definitely do not want to have any colored lights. That can be a big time issue as well. Now, before you start drilling holes and running wires, I highly recommend that you draw your circuit out. Actually get a piece of paper and a pencil and draw it out exactly how you want it to look. That way you can start to visualize this circuit in your head you see it on paper, and if that ends up working, you have a wiring diagram for it. Write down everything, write down the terminal locations, write down the fuse location if you're gonna use the add a fuse. If you are going to cut into factory wiring, which makes me a little uncomfortable, um, write down the wiring that you're cutting into, the color and everything. That way down the road, if you have a problem with it, you have a full diagram for you to use to diagnose what's wrong with it. After you have everything drawn out and you've tested your circuit on paper, I like to hook everything up exactly how it would be hooked up when it was installed without installing it. 
This is going to let you prove that your wiring diagram was right and your circuit's all wired up right. It's going to let you find the best locations for things like grounds, where to mount your relay, where to install your fuse. You can see what it's going to be like when it's in the car, and it lets you test all the components that you have, make sure your light bar works correctly, make sure your relay works correctly, your switch, and everything else. That way, if you do have a problem, you don't have to start undoing wiring, pulling wires out that you spent a lot of time running, nice, neat, proper location. You simply remove that portion that doesn't work and replace it with one that does. And finally, when you're making these connections, you really want to use high quality butt connectors. I really like the ones that have the heat shrink built onto them. You strip your wires, you put them on, you crimp them, and then you use a heat gun to heat them up and melt it. And that creates an airtight seal. It's weatherproof. And that is actually how a lot of OE manufacturers recommend making wiring repairs. You can also, of course, solder them. If you're really good at soldering, make sure you're doing a good job soldering using heat shrink, of course, to cover that solder connection up. All those little subtle things to make sure that no moisture or anything, dirt, debris, contaminants can get into your connections. And where you're connecting to like the battery or a chassis ground, make sure you use an eyelet and heat shrink or the eyelet with the heat shrink on it. You don't want to just simply strip the wire and wrap it around the bolt and hope for the best. One final thing to consider whenever I do this type of install, I always like to make sure I install it in a way that makes it easy to remove. You know, you can always leave it on the car if you sell the car, trade it in, but you may want to sell the vehicle, remove it, and install it on the next car. So that's one other reason why I don't really love cutting into factory wiring if I don't have to. But it's really easy to pull that out of circuit out, remove your relay, and then take all of your stuff off the car. When it boils down to it, this is something that a lot of people, I think, just like to throw in the car and set it and forget it kind of mindset. I actually like to really take my time, run the wires properly, zip tie them along other harnesses, make sure that nothing's going to rub on a fan or get in the way of a blend door or rub on a metal piece under the dash. You wanna make sure that you do a really good job of routing everything, installing everything, proper crimps, good solder if you're gonna go that route, make it look like it belonged there from the factory. So really take your time, route it properly, and do a good job. So JR, I hope that helps. I'll throw some links to Jack for some of the things we talked about, relay kits and the Adafuse and some of the butt connectors that I would use if I were going to do this job. Guys, don't forget that with these questions, I also put them in video format on YouTube. This may be another one that you really wanna watch that video of because I'll be showing you some of the things that I mentioned today. If you want to see more of my videos, head over to HumbleMechanic.com and check them out there. All right, guys, TSP, have a great weekend. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Great stuff from Charles. I, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel to have Charles the Humble Mechanic on the Expert Council. He's been just an awesome addition, and I am I'm grateful that he has uh, decided to serve in that capacity for us. And uh, just great guy. And Awesome answer. Next question I have is for expert council member Nick Ferguson on dealing with something called an ambrosia beetle. Not a good thing. Um, Nick, take it away. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com with an answer for Charlie in Georgia on the infamous granulate ambrosia beetle. He has trees being attacked by the granulate ambrosia beetle and wants to know how to deal with them. Well, Charlie, the bad news is there isn't much you can do about them. But there are things we can do to help your trees be as inhospitable as possible. 
You can spray the whole tree with a kale and clay mixture, which has been shown to reduce the beetle infestation rate, not eliminate it. But the main thing that we need to do is boost the tree health and reduce stress. So make sure that, that they're watered deeply, periodically, and are fertilized with slow-release nutrients like compost and rotting mulch. Those both help tremendously, as do healthy mycelial networks in the area under the tree. Make sure the tree root crowns are open to the air and that the tree is pruned properly to allow good airflow through the tree. Measure the drip line of the tree back to the trunk and you take that radius, that measurement, and double the number to find out how far your mulch and support species should extend. If the drip line is four foot out from the trunk, make sure that mulch and companion plants are growing from the trunk area all the way out to eight foot from the trunk. Another thing you can do to boost the health and vigor of your fruit trees is to periodically do a foliar feed of compost tea combined with one cup of molasses per gallon of water. That sugar will get in there. Uh, it'll uh, give a boost, a bacterial boost to the soil around it, which will then die off and provide some uh, nutrients to the tree. It's a great just kind of general foliar feed. All your foliar feeding should be done either in the evening after sunset or in the morning before sunrise. I prefer to do any of my foliar feeding in the evening. But the main thing here is to reduce the tree stress and boost the health of your trees as much as possible. Make sure you clean up any affected wood and burn it ASAP to help break up the life cycle locally. I hope this helps you out, man. I wish I had a more um, effective answer you know, one thing that you can do to completely eliminate them, but the fact is that they're, that they're just most likely going to be an issue, and the best thing you can do is to help boost that tree health. Best of luck with your fruit trees. For more info about me and to hear more solutions, check out my podcast and blog over at homegrownliberty.com. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. So I, I wanted to give one little... Uh, assist, I guess, there to this one for Nick because it's a product I've never used, but my understanding it is very effective. And I, I'm just betting a whole bunch of you went, What did he say toward the beginning there? He said, Kaolin Clay. And Kaolin Clay, Kaolin Clay, Kaolin Clay, Kaolin Clay, Kaolin Clay. I've heard it said a bunch of different ways, but it's Kaolin, K, and I'm going to spell it for you now K A O L I N. Okay, uh, Kilo Alpha Oscar Lima India November Kaolin Clay. What is Kaolin Clay? Well, it's actually used a lot in the cosmetics industry. It's considered good for your skin, so you know it's safe. And it's basically a clay. Kaolinite is the uh, the the raw material that you pound and make dust out of, and you end up with this clay. And it makes a white to depending on the grade or where it's from, a white to a light gray. Coating and it's mixed with water uh, at, at a fairly minimal amount to water because you want it to be very thin so it'll go through a sprayer. And you spray the leaves of plants that are being bothered by insects with it. And it it's not a pesticide, it doesn't kill them. But I want you to think about something. Let's say that there was a big juicy steak in front of you and you guys all ready to eat it. But I didn't let you eat it, I sprayed it with clay. And I let it dry. So when you chewed onto that beautiful steak that you want, or that, 
that juicy cellulose that that insect wants, that clay was just sticking to your mouth. It wouldn't be very palatable. And I think in situations where you have defoliation of trees, uh, especially trees, and nothing else will work, it's really worth giving a try. I only found one product that sold in any you know bulk at all uh, on Amazon, and I linked to it. Since I've never used it, I don't even know if it's a good price. But I linked to it so you can see what it is, and it has a brand name and all, but all it is is kaolin clay. If you go to any, like, larger nursery store, things like that, they're probably going to have this or they're going to be able to tell you where you can get it locally without buying a 50-pound bag of something or a 25-pound bag of something on, on Amazon. Um, I don't know what the ratios are. You'll have to look that up. But I, I would think even like a small, like they sell five-pound bags on Amazon for like, uh, for like cosmetics and stuff. Unless you have like an orchard, that's probably plenty because you don't need a lot of it. Again, you want the mixture to be thin. And you can look up how to do the mixture, but I think some of you that maybe have this type of problem, this is a really good product. It does have to be reapplied frequently because when it rains, a lot of it will wash off. If you get it on your fruits and stuff, it washes right off. When you, you know, right before you eat them, you just wash it off. Um, it doesn't really hurt anything, again. But, again, it, it is from, and I've learned about this from Howard Garrett. I've just not had a situation where I felt it was necessary to go out and use it. But I wanted you all to know about that. Uh, so that what he said makes sense. Next, I have uh, a trio of 401k questions for John Pugliano. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question is about 401ks, and it's actually not one question. We are going to take three separate questions that are all pretty similar about 401ks. Now, the first one comes from Ben in California. He has recently taken a new job, and he's wondering what he should do with the money that's in his old employer's 401k program. Now, he has about three choices here. He can leave his money in the old employer's 401k plan. Choice two is that he could roll it over to the new employer's 401k plan. Or choice three is that he could roll it over to a discount stockbroker like E-Trade, Charles Schwab, or any of those retail-type stockbrokers. Ben wants to know what he should do. Well, my dislike for corporate 401k programs is because to one degree or another, they limit your choices. Some of them are incredibly restrictive, limiting you to only a very few trading options. Oftentimes, not only do they limit what you can invest in, but they also put restrictions on the time frame that you can move in and out of different positions. Now, while there are some 401k plans that are much more liberal than others, they all have at least one limit in common, and that's the fact that you are unable to move your account out of that 401k plan as long as you're employed with that employer. So let's imagine that you're 25 years old, and that you're going to remain employed with your current employer for the next 40 years until you're 65. Well, the way the rules are currently written now, you can't ever move out of that employer-sponsored 401k plan. Now, you may be all right with that if, in fact, there are a lot of investment choices and limited restrictions. But even if it's very restrictive and even if there are a lot of high fees associated with that account, you have no choice to get out of it. I mean, that's ridiculous. Think about if you couldn't refinance your mortgage unless you switched employers. Or what if you couldn't switch your cable or your cell phone service because it was tied to your employer? That's one of the major problems that we have with our health insurance is that it is also tied to our employer. Ah, but that's another topic for a different day. I really do not like not having choice. And so for no other reason than that, 
I regard employer-sponsored 401k plans as subpar. You see, if you have your money in an IRA or in a Roth, and you're unhappy with your existing discount broker, or even if you're not unhappy and you just on a whim want to transfer that account, you can do that. You can do that as many times as you want as long as it goes custodian to custodian. So so if you get tired of Charles Schwab, you can send it to E-Trade. If you get tired of E-Trade, you can send it to TD Ameritrade. You can constantly keep doing that because you have choice. And as long as you have choice... That encourages these discount brokers to be competitive and to continually offer you better service. I don't think you're getting that out of 401k plans because you are statutorily locked into them. That gives them one big monopoly over your money, and that's why I believe that 401k plans generally are characterized by low customer satisfaction and high fees. You get that whenever you have some type of government-sponsored monopoly, which in my opinion is what we have with the current 401k plan program. So Ben, if I were you, I would not keep it in your old employer's 401k plan. I would not roll it over to your new employer's 401k plan. I would roll it over into a discount broker that you choose to work with. Now, there are a lot of them out there. Personally, I would stick with one of the big brand names that you're familiar with. And I wouldn't lose a whole lot of sleep over which one it was because, like I said, if you're ever unhappy with them, it's fairly easy to transfer it over to another discount broker. It's just a matter of doing the paperwork. There are no taxes or penalties involved with it as long as it's a custodian-to-custodian transfer. Now, our next question on 401k plans comes from Dylan. And the company that Dylan works for is going through some financial hard times. They had been matching his 401k contribution. However, they have stopped those matching contributions until they can work through this financial situation that the company's in. So Dylan's wondering, should he keep contributing to his employer's 401k plan even though they're no longer matching? Or should he do something else with the money like putting it towards paying off his student loan debts? Dylan is a fairly young man. He's 25 years old. Dylan, if I was in your situation and I was working for this company that was having financial troubles, First and foremost, I'd be brushing off my resume, working on my networking, and looking for a new job. When a company's unstable like that, particularly right now in an economy where corporate profits are actually doing pretty well, and we seem to be at a peak of a business cycle, if your company's already having hard times and we haven't gone into the next recession, your company probably has some very bad underlying problems, and you as a young man might want to be looking for a company that's more stable. Now, as far as your specific question, no, I would not be contributing anything to an employer 401k plan where I did not receive a match from the employer. I think these plans are too restrictive, and you do have other options. So just because you're not contributing to your employer's 401k plan does not mean that you can't save money for your retirement in a tax-advantaged vehicle. At your age, you can put up to $5,500 a year into either a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. Personally, if it was me, I would put it in the Roth IRA in any case. Both of them offer you tax advantages, and I believe they're a great way for people to save money. Now, that takes us to our third question, which is also about 401k plans and involves student loan debt. And coincidentally, it happens to be from another Dylan. Dylan is wondering if he should borrow money from his 401k plan and use that to pay off $45,000 in student loan debt. I think that your retirement money is sacred special money. 
It's there for you to build up wealth to take care of you when you're in your old age. It's like an emergency fund. You shouldn't tap into your emergency fund when it's not an emergency. I personally don't believe you should be spending or tapping into your retirement money until you get into retirement. While on paper it may make sense to borrow from your 401k plan and then take that money and pay off a student loan debt or some other type of debt to save on the interest that you'd pay on that debt, but in practice it generally doesn't work out that way because it just fuels our spending and our consumption. It's like when someone consolidates all their credit card debt and pays it off with a line of credit from a second mortgage on their house. And then before you know it, they go out and they build up more consumer credit card debt and they still have the second mortgage on their home that they never paid off. The problem with debt is not the interest rate we pay for it or what bucket we pull out of to pay it off. The problem is is that we don't have the discipline to not take on the debt to begin with. And I think the only way to really get out of that is to do something like a Dave Ramsey debt snowball where you just attack the debt, smallest one first, and just start wiping them out until you get rid of them. Moving money from account to account, trying to save a few pennies on interest, I just don't see it working for most people because the problem isn't paying off the debt, the problem is that they continually spend too much. So no, I would not borrow from my retirement money to pay off a student loan debt. I would tighten up my belt, I'd buckle down, I'd drastically cut back on my consumption, and I'd be putting money away in an emergency fund, I'd be putting money away into my retirement, and I would be voraciously working down and trying to pay off any type of student loan debt or consumer debt that I had. Now specifically in Dylan's case, I've talked to him offline He's had this student loan debt for over 12 years. I know that he earns a very nice income. He's in a position where if he just buckles down, he could take money out of his existing cash flow from his normal paycheck, and within less than a year, he could get rid of the student loan debt that's been hanging around for like 12 years. That's what I would encourage him to do. Just knock it out, earn your freedom, and get on with your life. Well, hey, thanks for all your questions. If you'd like to hear more about my wealth building principles or my take on the stock market, then please check out the Wealth Studying Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little add on the, you know, the conversion of debt uh, to pay it off. So at one time, long before I started the Survival Podcast, when we were not living the very principles that I teach today, And we had gotten ourselves into well over $30,000 in credit card debt. Fortunately, uh, other than one car payment, that's that's what we had. We had nothing else. We didn't have student loans or anything like that. And I, I basically started doing debt snowball without knowing that's what I was doing. I just looked at all of the debt and realized that, hey, the easiest thing to do is pay off the smallest one first and then pay off the next one and the next one. And we did that, and we gave it hell. And we reduced that debt from about $30,000 to $15,000 in one year. One year. And uh, I was not at the height of my income level at, at that point. I actually had taken a big hit in income because I had moved. This was a time of my life when I moved from sales and I was making a, 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 a very solid six-figure salary. And I came down to making around $50,000 a year to get my foot in the door with marketing. And, uh, you know, the, gee, at that time, let's decide to pay off our debt. And, but we did. And even with that pay cut, we did. We cut it in half. And we were living in a house that I knew we would eventually sell. We had a lot of equity in it. 
And we had about $15,000 left in debt on credit card debt. And we had about $3,000, we had about $5,000 at that point left of a vehicle payment. And we left the vehicle payment. We did a cash-out refi of the house, which actually lowered our house payment. And when we did that, we paid off the credit card debt with the cash-out. We got basically exactly what was necessary to get rid of the credit card debt. And we, we, we absorbed the credit card debt into the house debt. And we still had plenty of equity. We then destroyed all our credit cards and didn't even own one until about three years ago. And it'd been, so that had been almost 10 years without even owning a credit card. About three years ago, we finally got a credit card again because it got to the point where it was becoming very difficult in some markets to rent a car when we traveled. And I listened to people moan about it over and over and over again for those 10 years. And I'm like, we just use our debit card. And we always did. We just pull out a Visa check card. And, and it got to where you'd get to a place and, oh, well, we don't take those at this location. And the one time we got hit, we were supposed to have a car for 300 bucks, and the car ended up costing us 500 because they had to use a different provider, and it was the only one that would do it on a check card. And we got home from that trip, and I told Dorothy, get us a credit card or two, and we're just going to put them away, and they're there for things like this. So we went that long without having one. Now, I'm going to tell you why that worked, and I'm going to tell you why people like Dave Ramsey say not to you know, do a cash-out refi to pay off your debt. Because the interest rate's not a problem, and that's a problem. Because if you don't suffer through it, you will just go back into debt. I personally believe if you make a commitment to whittling that debt down, you're whittling that debt away, and you've lived the way you're supposed to for a few months, four or five, let's say, and you've made a significant dent in it, and the financial numbers work out to where you should get rid of it, if you will make the commitment to destruction of the credit cards... And closing of the credit card accounts as soon as the debts are paid off or what other other debts you have to pay off are done, then it makes if it financially makes sense to do it, do it. And if what I well, here's what I mean by really by financially making sense. In many instances, you can end up with the same or lower house payment or just a few dollars more than you have and twenty thousand dollars of debt goes away. If you don't do that, I think you're making a bad financial decision based on math. Just based on, and not based on, you know, complicated math. Well, the interest rate is this, and this is your savings over this many years. No, I'm talking about just flat out basic mathematics. Like, you're still going to have a house payment. It's still going to be about the same amount of money, but you're not going to have all these other payments. And the other thing you have to do is whatever payment you were making, You make a commitment to yourself for the next six months, I'm going to pretend I still have that debt, and I'm going to put it in a savings account. By the time you graduate from that hardcore course on reality, you'll have a lot of value in that money you put in a savings account, a tremendous amount of value. And you'll have more, you'll, you might have more than the debt itself because those, that, that money's not being used to atrophy interest. And a lot of credit cards, you know, people are paying 12, 16% on credit cards, man. You know, and, and when, I, when people like Dave Ramsey say, like, if you can get a new credit card at a lower interest rate, don't even do that. No, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. Because it's still in the same form. It's still credit card debt. And if you could take, you know, credit card A and it's, it's 12% interest, and you can get a credit card with 6% interest, then you should immediately get transfer and then take the old one 
and destroy it. Destroy it. Close the account and cut it up in pieces. And when you have that emergency credit card for things like renting a car and stuff, you should have a firebox in your house somewhere. It goes in there. You don't remember what the credit card number is on it or where it's there. When you have to take a trip and you need to rent a car, you get it out. Otherwise, you don't even. It's not there in your head, and it stays with zero balance. That's that's my modified credit card rules since starting the show. Because the flat reality is, if you travel and you rent cars, you need a credit card today. It sucks, but it's it's true. All right. Next up, I have a question. Final one of the day here. Actually, no, I don't have another questions. It's it's my turn. It's my turn, and it's time for our special guest to come on in just a second, Vin Armani. Uh, and again, by special guest, I'm being a little bit uh, plucky there because we're actually uh, pulling uh, out a segment of his show from this week, about 13 minutes long. Before I introduce that, let me let me explain to you why I, I decided to cover this today. Um, email comes in for me from David, and David says, TSPC, Jack was right. It's one of those ones like it could be good or bad, but you know sometimes when I get Jack is right, I look at it and go, damn it. Uh, not this time. It's, this is, this is, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad. It's kind of neutral in that right. But it's also kind of, it's kind of comical when you read the comments by the person that, that the article's about. And it's an article on Cointelegraph and it's head of Bunders Bank proposes digital currency to compete with Bitcoin. And what I've been saying is all of these major nations are going to go into the digital currency business to commit with, compete with Bitcoin because they have to. This is the evolution of finance. And they're behind, you know, they're a decade behind already, and they're trying to catch up to, like, Gen 1, and we're, you know, just light years ahead at this point. But let me read the article for you because it, it shows something that proves people don't know what the hell they're talking about if they're not involved with crypto and they and they haven't developed an understanding of it. They 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 are so in the dark about what it actually is. Here's what it says. Jens Wein probably Jens Weinderman Weinman? Yeah, Jens Weinman, the head of Germany's central bank, Blunders Bank, and one of the most powerful bankers in Europe proposed the development of a central bank issued digital currency to compete with Bitcoin. Weidman argued that Bitcoin could potentially worsen future financial crises due to its decentralized network nature and non-existence of central entities within the Bitcoin network. Okay, I, I, I want to think this guy's actually smart in what he's saying here. And basically what he's saying is, well, shit, since there's no central authority to Bitcoin, the next time there's a financial crisis... A lot of people are going to run to currencies like Bitcoin, and they're going to leave our centralized banks behind. And that's the actual problem, right? Let me keep reading, though. Although Weinerman's recognition of the explosive growth of fintech and cryptocurrency markets should be appreciated, he's dismissive of the structure of Bitcoin and characteristics of decentralized cryptocurrency that makes settlement networks such as Bitcoin valuable. To this date, only a very limited group of traders, experts, analysts, and investors, users understand the technical intricacies of Bitcoin. While Bitcoin's concept is simple in theory, it has been difficult for the vast majority of people within the traditional finance sector to understand because they have learned to deal with centralized monetary systems and financial networks. For most, it is difficult to embrace Bitcoin's decentralized nature because it contradicts the very purpose of the global financial sector. During a speech featured by a business insider, Weidman states, stated that issuance of central bank-based digital currencies is safer for the public as the central bank cannot become insolvent. <laughs> I, I, I just can't. Okay, I'm gonna, I, I can't read the rest of this article. I'm going, 
I'm going to put a link in it if you want to read the rest of it as you can. So the central bank can't become insolvent. But the central bank is not going to produce a deflationary currency like Bitcoin with a fixed amount of issued currency over a period of time. So again, Bitcoin, there will only ever be 23 million Bitcoins. And when demand outpaces you know, supply, you just keep making smaller and smaller pieces. So th th this is something I theorized many years ago when I was talking about new monetary systems, and Bitcoin didn't exist yet, and I never saw it as Bitcoin. I'm not saying I, I had the vision for Bitcoin, but this piece of Bitcoin I did. It's called cap and fractionalize. Okay, You cap the total amount of currency and you fractionalize it. One of the, the things that I've seen over the years that, that I thought made sense, I just never trusted government to do it, for a currency would be you, you create a currency for the new U.S. dollar. You stop basing it on debt. You make it true fiat. Because, guys, cryptocurrency is a fiat currency. It, I know you don't think it's because the government didn't issue But it's a fiat currency because all it is is a material, it, it, an immaterial idea made up of algorithms and digits and numbers that people have accepted as money. See, the, the creators put it out and said it's money, and then by that definition, people then accepted it as money. Now, instead of using fiat through the power of the state, it was fiat through the power of logic and mathematics and economy. Okay? But the original concept of like a cap on the currency would be, okay, so you, you say that there's X amount of value in a nation, and you cap the currency at that. And when you need more, well, it has to be an underlying increase in the value, or what you do is you make the currency in some way infinitely fractionable or more fractionable than, let's say, pennies, and let the currency become stronger. Now, for central bankers, this is a disaster. And that's why they can't understand it. And what they really can't understand is that the purpose of Bitcoin isn't to compete with them. That's not what it is. It's to destroy them. It's to render them obsolete. That's the long-term purpose of this. That's why it was developed. That's why the primary people that are developers of new cryptocurrencies, fork currencies, altcoins, all of this stuff, that not, the, not the miners that are in it mostly for the money, the developers are mostly anarcho-types. Because that's the mission, to render the central banks obsolete. Now, how long is that process? I don't know. It's a very long one as far as I'm concerned, even at this point. But they don't even understand. It's, you know the movie um, Independence Day, the, the first one with Will Smith, right? Where they launch the nuclear bomb and it gets stuck into their, their, uh, their uh, thing and the alien's looking at it and he doesn't know what it is? It's just something they shot at him. It, it's like stuck in the in the wedged into the like the the housing thing that this big buggy looking alien is sitting in. And then finally, he kind of sees what it is, and it's a timer counting down to zero, and it clicks. Oh shit! This is a nuclear bomb I'm sitting on. That's that's not just Bitcoin. That's cryptocurrency in the central bankers. It's like the, the, all the major central banks of the world have a giant nuclear bomb sitting under them right now. It's eventually going to destroy them, and they don't even know what it is. They're like, we need to build one, too, so we can compete with this. 
but we'll build ours better, and it won't ever go and solve it because we can always print more money. I mean, the fundamental lack of understanding for them to think that way is unbelievable. So, like I said, I wanted to believe that maybe he was smart, but I don't think he is. And I don't think, actually, I, won't, I, I don't doubt this man's smart. He's probably like IQ level very high. He can't see what this is. And it's not just him. Something just happened in Nevada that is amazing. It is an amazing example of a state legislature, both houses, the Senate and the House, unanimously approving something that you won't believe when you hear what it is, and the governor signing it, and clearly these people do not know what they have done, and just being completely owned by the people that came in to testify on behalf of passing this legislation. I'll turn this over to Vin Armani and I'll come back and finish up. This, I know today's show is going to go long, but this is one of the greatest victories in front of a legislature that's ever occurred in the history of the United States of America. It might be the, the greatest. It, it really might. Because it wasn't thought for. It was freaking sold to them. And they don't know to this day. I don't think they know what they bought. Where do you hear this? Hope, just a second. I almost forgot. I think this is important that I say this. Um, about two minutes before the end of this segment, so about 12 minutes in, you're going to hear Christian, um, who is Vin's co-host, use the F word. Um, I'm not big on censorship. I do use that word in common language, like if I was having a beer with you. Um, but I don't generally put it on the air. And I believe that content providers such as myself should be able to do anything the F we want, but we should make it so that our audience knows what to expect from us. And I have basically made it so that you expect not to hear the F word. And some of you listen with your kids, and that might be a, a bit much for you. All right, you're going to hear it. I'm not taking it out. It's way too genuine. When you hear it, you'll understand. And uh, I just wanted to put that disclaimer there. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, hear from Vin and Christian on this amazing thing. It's the future, and it's here right now. So let's talk about this, because mm -hmm. something happened in Nevada, and that's why at the beginning of this story I this had this Nevada-Gora thing. Mm -hmm. A law was passed this week, uh, Senate Bill so SB 398, it's called. This law was passed. I want to go into this because this is a re this is some real crypto savagery, right? <laughs> like this is seeing as a crypto savage seeing this world like like we're talking about, well, it's the future, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Seeing this world and realizing, holy shit, like the old culture, the people in this old culture, even the people in charge of the old culture, they They don't even see it. Like, they can't see it at all. I want to talk about what happened with this bill. It's super, super interesting. So uh, go ahead and throw up this NV bill thing. Okay, so this, this is how I uh, found out about it here. This is from Coindesk. And the headline is, Nevada becomes first U.S. state to ban blockchain taxes. So we're here in Nevada. This, I said, ban Great. blockchain taxes. What is that? So here's the story. Nevada has become the first state to ban local governments from taxing blockchain use. Coindesk reported yesterday that Nevada's legislature had cleared the bill, the first, first introduced in March, and sent it to Governor Brian Sandoval for approval. Public records show that Governor Sandoval approved the measure yesterday, enshrining it in state law. In addition to preventing local governments from taxing the use of a blockchain or smart contract or requiring a licensure for their use, the bill st stipulates 
if a law requires a record to be in writing, submission of a blockchain which electronically contains the record satisfies the law, meaning that data from a blockchain can be introduced in proceedings. The measure enjoyed broad support in the Nevada legislature, public records show. The Senate advanced it by a 21 to 0 vote in April, followed by the House of Representatives, which also passed it unanimously. So we've got this unanimous bill being passed. So what is this bill exactly? Why did this have me freaking out all week? What's in it? It's not even a bill anymore. It's a law now. So what is the new law in Nevada? Let's let's show this, um, yes, SB 398. So let's take a look at this thing. So its description is, establishes various provisions relating to the use of blockchain technology. Approved by the governor, as they said in the article, both the Senate and Assembly unanimously, you can see that at the bottom of this thing, unanimously approve this thing. One person was excused. All right, let's take a look at the text of this. Go to the next one here. Okay, so this is Senate Bill 398. An act relating to electronic transactions, recognizing blockchain technology as a type of electronic record for the purposes of the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act, prohibiting a local government from taxing or imposing restrictions upon the use of a blockchain and providing other matters properly relating hereto. So, just to get it out of legalese, the most important part to me, so it recognizes the blockchain, that's fine. It recognizes it as an electronic record, that's fine. This part, prohibiting a local government from taxing or imposing restrictions upon the use of a blockchain. And we know that the primary use for the blockchain right now is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So, like, let's read that a little bit differently. Prohibiting a local government, stopping a local government from taxing or imposing restrictions upon the use of Bitcoin upon the use of cryptocurrency. And the use of cryptocurrency, the use of Bitcoin, as we just discussed, what is the use except commerce? And now the, let's go keep going. The text of this bill is very, very strange. So they say, what is a blockchain? Pretty clear. An electronic record of transactions or other data, which is one, uniformly ordered. Two, redundantly maintained or processed by one or more computers or machines to guarantee the consistency or non-repudiation of the recorded transactions or other data. And three, validated by the use of cryptography. So blockchain is now defined within Nevada state law. Being in there on its own. They made a definition. Okay, let's go next. This is where it gets interesting. So this Nevada, uh, the Nevada statutes, Chapter 244, is basically the place that gives local uh, governments, in this case county governments, the right. So it's the state giving counties the right to regulate businesses. And in this, it said it added a new section, and it says. A board of county commissioners shall not, A, impose any tax or fee on the use of a blockchain by any person or entity. B, require any person or entity to obtain from the board of county commissioners any certificate, license, or permit to use a blockchain. Or C, impose any other requirement relating to the use of a blockchain by any person or entity. Then it goes down and it says, 
except as otherwise provided in subsections 2, 3, and 4, blah, 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 and that part, the part that I just read, a board of county commissioners may, A, regulate all character of lawful trades, callings, industries, occupations, professions, and business conducted in its county outside of the limits of incorporated cities and towns. So this is super important. The way this reads, whether or not this is what someone was trying to put in, I mean, this was obviously crafted by some lobbyist, cannot figure out who the lobbyist is, would be interested to know. I mean, we discussed Reno. The person who introduced this is a representative from Reno. We discussed several months ago how Reno is now uh, uh, the place where Tesla and Google and other drone companies are going to be testing all their automation. As I read this, it basically puts an exemption saying that the counties, and we'll show the cities is next, cannot regulate trades, businesses, etc. that use the blockchain, that use Bitcoin. Go, 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 go back to it. Go forward into it. Don't jump, don't jump off it because I want people to get a chance to look at this because it's very, very interesting. The next part is fix, impose, and collect a license tax for revenue or for regulation or for both revenue or regulation. This is for the city. Same thing. On all character of lawful trades, callings, industries, occupations, professions, and businesses conducted within corporate limits. So it does the same thing for the city. To basically say... If you are using the blockchain, which is if you are you right now, if you are using Bitcoin, if you are using cryptocurrency, you are exempted from local business licensing, business taxes, fees, regulations. I mean, it says require any person or, or it says uh, impose any other requirement relating to the use of a blockchain by any person or entity. Imagine if that didn't say blockchain. Imagine if that said paper currency. Impose any other requirement relating to the use of paper currency by any person or entity. Christian, I don't know how you read that besides saying if you're running a business and all you're taking is cryptocurrency, you're exempt. It's crazy. It's huge. You don't need a, a county license. <laughs> yeah. You don't need. Not only do you not need a license, it's illegal for them to even right. require anything. It said any requirement. It's crazy. Any requirement. It's crazy. I, like I don't even. For me, I looked at this and I was like, "What? The, yeah. Why would they even write this? This is crazy. Do they even know what they're doing? Like this is crazy." Somebody, one of the lobbyists or somebody high up is definitely uh, benefiting. Well, <laughs> I think, well, let's let's do this because I was like, I need to know. Let's look at this testimony, right? I was like, they can't have, they can't have done yeah. this. But when you see the testimony that was prevented, presented, so basically they presented the bill in front of the Judiciary Committee, right, to decide if, oh, is this legal, can we even do it? They brought uh, three people. One is the CEO of a company called Filament. They're out of Reno, and they make mesh networks. The second was the Western, Western Nevada Development something. And then it was a member of the Libertarian Party. 
and they brought them show this because I, I went and I grabbed it. Let's take a look at let's take a look at what they actually said in this thing because it's really telling. Like these dudes got owned. So this was on March 30th. They took this in there. So you had Allison Cliff Jennings, she's the CEO of Filament, Doug Irwin, who's the economic development from the Economic Development Authority of Western Nevada, and Wendy Stolyarov, who's from the Libertarian Party of Nevada. Okay. Let's go for it. So just a few of the questions and the answers, right? Because they're pretty wild. So they start this thing, and the chair, uh, Senator Siegerblom, says, can you explain in layman's terms what a blockchain is? And then the CEO of Filament says, a blockchain is a digitized version of a proceeding similar to an Excel spreadsheet shared among many people. Anyone would know if someone else changes a row in that spreadsheet. A lot of technology changes the way blockchain works, but it is a fundamental way to create or increase trust between parties in transactions across all aspects of industry. Chair Siegerblom, why would this be necessary? (laughs) She says, in many different industries, a lot of trust needs to be established for transactions to happen. An example is auditing of major banks and other regulated industries that require auditing to prove... Things, have, things did or did not happen. Blockchain can enable capabilities to provide trust or establish verification of, sub, of substantiation of something that happened in the physical world in a way that does not require auditing. Bravo. Bravo. No, no <laughs> cryptocurrency, no money, no Bitcoin, no nothing. Go on. I was looking at this thing and I was like, holy shit, they just hacked the... the. They then she it. says, blockchain, this is her whole answer to why would this be necessary. Blockchain technology is as important as the internet or mobile smartphones because it will change entire industries. It is only about eight or ten years old. Many companies, such as major banks, including Visa, Citicorp, and Wells Fargo and Company, and research groups are using blockchain. <laughs> you have my written testimony. It is not often that a new technology completely changes the way we interact with each other. As a CEO of a venture-backed, blockchain-based startup headquartered in Reno, I'm excited about this new technology and its ability to reduce fraud and bring new trust to existing interactions. As a native of Reno, I want to see Nevada continue its efforts to be friendly to technology entrepreneurs. Senate Bill 398 will make the state a leader in this revolutionary technology. It helps ensure prospective companies moving to Nevada that its legislature supports their work in building for the future. Wow. Dude. Bravo. Fuck. (laughs) That is fucking great. To to be able to mention... The blockchain and no mention of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, the primary use for it. Mm-hmm. And it isn't mentioned throughout this whole thing. Go to the next. I think there's a. So this is from the Libertarian Party of Nevada. This was uh, Wendy Stoyarov. This is her statement. You have my written testimony. The Libertarian Party of Nevada supports SB 398 because the party opposes all government censorship, regulation, and control of communications, media, and technology. Don Tapscott, author of Blockchain Revolution, said, The blockchain is basically a distributed database. Think of a giant global spreadsheet that runs on millions and millions of computers. It's distributed. It's open source. So anyone can see what's going on. It's truly peer-to-peer. It doesn't require powerful intermediaries to authenticate or to settle transactions. The blockchain is an immutable, unhackable, distributed database of digital assets. This is a platform for truth, and it's a platform for trust. The implications are staggering, not just for the financial services industry, but also right across virtually every aspect of society. Then she continues with her own statement. 
Ensuring free and open access to blockchain will stimulate, stimulate economic growth and cement northern Nevada's role as a burgeoning center for high-tech innovation. Oh, that's interesting. I had skipped over that. This is really about northern Nevada, about Reno. Aha. Mm-hmm. Governments can never keep pace with technological change, and when it tries, inevitably slows the rate of innovation. The past 20 years of online innovation have demonstrated how free markets, unhampered by government control, can fundamentally alter and radically improve the way we live in unimaginable ways. Blockchain is an extremely promising new technology, and it is essential to set boundaries to protect it while it is in its infancy. Bro. Wow. Bravo. Fuck, that's great. They owned the legislature and the governor. Okay, I I, want to use an actual... Mainstream media clip from all the way back in 1994 to explain to you what's going on with cryptocurrency right now. This is a a, a one and a half minute segment from the Today Show from 1994, and they're giving out an email address, an email address. And they're confused by the at symbol with the A with the circle around it. And they think this is internet. Okay, listen to this and consider that cryptocurrency is actually far more complicated to understand than internet. And these are people in mainstream media, wealthy people, that would be one of the first groups of people to have access to computer internet services in just 1994. This is not that long ago. I know it seems like... For some of you young people, that seems like, wow, that's when old people were born or something. I'm telling you, 94, we were pretty sophisticated with technology already. I was already using computers, you know, in, in my job and things like that. So here you go. This is today's show, 1994, discussing Internet and email addresses. This will blow you away. Back now at 56 past, I wasn't prepared to translate that as I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At... See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, Kay said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard or it. Around. I'd never heard it about. said. I'd always seen around. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. <coughs> yeah, well, I'd heard something big after the lunchroom. <laughs> See, there it is. Violence at NBC, G-E-com. I mean. Well, what well, Allison should know. What, what do you is say Internet that anyway? Internet is uh, that... Massive computer right. network, mm-hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big. How does one? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. With, I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? No, she can't say anything in ten seconds or less. Oh, <laughs> oh. Allison will be in the studio shortly. What, is what it? does it mean? It's a, it's a giant computer network made up made up of uh, started from. Oh, I thought you were going to tell us what this was. It's so like a, look a in computer the billboard. It's, it's not in it. It's it, it's it's a computer billboard, but it's nationwide, right. and it's it's several uh, universities and everything all joined together. And right, and others can access it. And, right, and it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. It just came great. in really handy during the quake. A lot of people, that's how they were communicating out to tell family and loved ones they were okay because all the phone lines were down. I was telling Katie, and I was but you don't need you don't need that you don't need a phone line to operate. No, internet? no. Okay, what what made me think of that clip was that. I had recently heard on another episode of Vin's show that um, 
there were people in the newsroom at, I think it was MSNBC or CBS or something like that, and they were talking about Bitcoin. Like, they have one of the little, like, the financial ones, and like, the, the financial version or whatever. But they were talking about Bitcoin and, and how it was surging in price. They, they gave it, you know, two seconds of coverage or whatever. But they, they surmised that it was because big companies were stockpiling Bitcoin to pay off ransomware. And I thought to myself, these P-Brains got this from somebody. There has to be a bigger P-Brain. So the bigger P-Brain actually means the P that is the brain is smaller, so the head is larger with more empty space in it. And I thought to myself, who is the biggest P-Brain in economics currently in mainstream media that I can possibly think of. And immediately I thought of my favorite idiot, Jim Cramer, Mr. You know, don't buy don't worry about Bear Stearns, they're gonna be fine and like a week later they're gone. That guy? I figured this is you know if it's CNBC, like this is the guy. So I started I wondered, I said has Jim Cramer been talking about Bitcoin? Listen to this and tell me it doesn't sound more incoherent, more moronic than what you just heard about. What 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 is internet anyway? Like, do you write to it? Where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? We got to talking about how yes, that you when you get hit by cyber by a cyber attack and ransomware, you have to pay them in Bitcoin. Now, did you guys know this? When you get hit and you're not sure how to do Bitcoin, that the cyber attackers have customer service desks. <laughs> to tell you how to buy Bitcoin to pay them. Now, I know I, this is not facetious. They have customer service desks. And you want to know why big, one of the reasons why Bitcoin, no, there are many reasons why Bitcoin, there are whole countries that are trying to get money out of their country with Bitcoin. But I think the idea that when you're attacked and they give you a customer service, they give you an 800 number to dial, to tell you how to buy Bitcoin so that you can get your computer unfrozen. I mean, this is a business. This is a supermarket. It's like Sammy Wild wanted with the supermarket of finance, supermarket of cybersecurity. It's, it's, it's global, right? Yeah. Clearly. Uh, although no intrinsic value, limited supply. Right. Uh, as Henry Blodgett told us the other day, it could literally go to a million dollars. I think that it could because the European banks are frantically trying to buy them so that they can pay off ransomware. It's a short-circuited way, to, short, short-term way to be able to deal with cybersecurity. But uh, it is the way to pay off the bad guys because they don't want it. It's better than bearer bonds. You know, like the bonds, it's the way you pay them is Bitcoin. Now, look, this guy was always an idiot. He was never intelligent, in my view, in his professional career. I don't know if maybe when he was a kid he was smart, he bumped his head or something. But I think at this point he has bumped his head again or he's in, uh, in some form of early dementia or something. He sounds completely incoherent. But it does show the broader thing. They don't get it. They don't get it at all. The reason Bitcoin is going up in price is because European banks are buying a bunch of it as a short-term fix to cybersecurity. Does this moron know that the banks in Europe were not hit by the, 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 the ransomware? That it was like all these little piddly dick companies? And Bitcoin has a market cap in, in billions and billions of dollars? And the total that came in on this ransomware thing was like forty thousand bucks or something like that. It wouldn't move the needle. Like just if you if you bring the numbers down, just imagine that you have forty million dollars and you were charged a four dollar fee against it. 
it, it doesn't move the needle, does it? I mean, how much can you care? Actually, it's more like four cents. Because you're talking about moving the price versus even taking something away. Like, it's still there. It still exists. It's still, it's still auditable on the blockchain. By the way, the money that was sent for the, the, the cry, cry now or whatever it is, ransomware, it's all still in the same addresses that it was sent to. Hasn't moved anywhere. And no, there were not customer service people helping you learn how to buy Bitcoin. I just, but the good news is, this is how clueless they are. The central banks are clueless. You know, John Pugliano was on and he said, you know, if you're Janet Yellen, you're worried about this. They're not. They're worried about it from a, a small potatoes thing. Like, it's hurting us a little bit. They don't get that they're sitting on a nuclear bomb. They don't understand it. And they can't understand it. And you could, you could have these people listen to me explain this. And they, it, it would be like I'm saying, blah, they wouldn't have a clue that the words would be English, but the concepts that they were creating when they were put together are the antithesis of what they know to be true. They have a cognitive bias they cannot overcome. Eventually they will, but I want you to think about it like this. Many of you are aware of how money is created. Okay, You're aware that money is lent into existence. You're aware that basically if you buy a house, the bank doesn't give you money. They create new money based on your promise to pay the money back that doesn't exist. They use you to print money. That our government does this. The government loans money into existence. That when the Federal Reserve buys a bond to expand the monetary supply, they don't use money. They make a journal entry that creates new money, and they take possession of the bond for providing nothing. You understand this. Some of you maybe don't. It's almost better if you don't understand it. I'm not going to explain it deeply today. Because right now, if you don't understand it, your mind is repelled by it. If you do understand it, I want you to go back to when you thought the government just printed money. That's how money worked. That it was just They just printed money. They just had like a thing, and they just made money. And you didn't understand the fractional reserve system. The first time somebody probably tried to explain that to you, even though it's, it's super simple, it's very simple, your mind had a hard time accepting it. Not even because, well, they wouldn't do something like that. It was just because it doesn't make sense. Why the hell would you build a monetary system like this? And it's so counter to everything that you believe in your core. That's them times a hundred on steroids trying to conceive of how cryptocurrency works. They can't. You, know, you, you heard the guy say, well, it's, 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 it's backed by nothing and it's unlimited supply. Well, first of all, it's a limited supply, limited with an L, not an unlimited supply, okay? And, and that is part of what gives it value as far as Bitcoin itself. But it, it's almost not even worth trying to explain it. If you just listen to everything you heard here, you understand why Vin uses the term crypto savage. Crypto savage. We're right in plain sight. Walk into the walk into the Nevada legislature and sell them on exempting it, uh, any business in their state that does business in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin or otherwise, from any county or local uh, laws. You can't require anything additional of them if they use cryptocurrency. And never use the word cryptocurrency one time. <laughs> 
cryptocurrency the bill? None of the people that testified said Bitcoin, Litecoin, cryptocurrency, Zcash. They said blockchain technology. And these people, like, they, and they unanimously passed it. I've seen comments about this various places. Like, well, they'll just change it. It's not so easy. You understand they voted for this unanimously? Without understanding what they were doing, do you know how complicated it is now to go, yeah, uh, we just provided this protection, now we're going to take it away because it's bad? What they're going to have to do, what Nevada's going to have to do now is, is realize the windfall that they created for themselves. They have now the ability to become the mecca, and they're already a hell of a good place to do business. But, I mean, if I wanted to run any business in Nevada right now, I would make sure that there was a Bitcoin ATM very close to where I was going to be. And I would put my business there and I would say, I'm sorry, we don't accept cash. You can go down to the Bitcoin ATM. Now, see, I think you got to be careful with that, whether this provision, because county governments are sneaky and city governments are sneaky, and they could require permitting for the, the ATMs. But there's, there's got to be a way to just basically be able to let your customers quickly switch into crypto. And if you start developing these entire areas of crypto-based businesses. And the, the first ones will probably be things like miners and stuff like that. And that might, Vin might be right. That might be where the lobbyist money came from. Because now if you want to go put a giant data center in for crypto mining, the Nevada's the place, baby. It is. It, it's, it, it's the place. But see, once you get a beachhead, man, then it's on. Then it's on. Anyway, guys... It's exciting time to be around. I think that what you're seeing is the old guard being killed by the death of 10,000 cuts. And the cuts that they're getting now are like little annoyances, and they don't understand that they're going to keep coming. Again, they don't know. They're literally sitting on top of nuclear bombs at this point, and they're just going tick, tick, tick. And I don't know how long that timer is. It could be a year. It could be 10 years. It could be 20 years. But the death nail of the archaic system that's been used to control people is coming. Now, the danger is that they do figure this out, they co-opt this technology for themselves, and they come back full force against it. I'm ready for that fight. I think the actions of tens of thousands or even you know maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of hackers in a completely open source world is something they can never get their hands back around i guarantee you that you know what is internet i don't understand that once like internet really became a thing government went oh shit we shouldn't have let this happen al gore's like damn i shouldn't have created this holy shit they're telling the truth about it. they hate the internet now They hate what we can do on the internet, and they've tried to control it. They've tried to shut it down. They've tried. They can't. It's impossible now. You can't do it. You'll have Congress clowns hanging from trees if you shut the internet off. And as long as it's there, you can't control it because people have already seen it wide open. It's not like North Korea where they rolled it out controlled so they could do the basic things they needed to get done, and nobody's ever seen it any differently. It's totally different. The world is changing. I hope you're excited to be part of it. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. It doesn't mean you don't need to still stay prepared and do all the things we talk about. But it does mean to keep your eyes wide open and think of how you can capitalize on things like this. And if nothing else, even if Nevada repeals that law, 
the ownership of their state legislature by these people was one of the greatest moments in history. With that, if you enjoy today's show and you want to support the work that we do, um, one of the ways that you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, and as long as you're shopping from tspaz.com, you're supporting the work that we do. I have items that I review every day there, and I've got one for you today that's a plant. I thought it was time to do something a little different with my reviews of the day. It's a plant I actually talked about before in an episode. I guess I did about two months ago. It's called Bloody Dock. It's also known as blood-veined sorrel. Now, it sounds kind of macabre or something. It just it has red veins in it. That's it's a green leaf sorrel with red veins, um, kind of beet-like in their appearance. And like beets, when you cut them, they do bleed a little bit. Not as bad as like beetroot does, but there's a little bit of uh, like color that comes out of those. It's just something to be aware of with your hands or your your kitchen or what have you. Uh, but it's an edible plant. And it has my big four. These are the four biggest things. If I see these four things in a plant, I want it on my property. Number one, hard to kill. I like plants that are hard to kill. And now understand, you can kill stuff easily if you put it where it doesn't belong. But as long as you give this stuff what it wants, which is moist soil, and you know, probably 50 to 80 percent of the day getting some sun, and the rest of the time getting some shade, you can't kill it. Uh, you really can't. It has to taste good. It does. It's a great eating plant. It has to be perennial to have my big four, and then it has to look good. I mean, this is something you can grow in your HOA front yards. It's just a pretty plant. It's just awesome. And I have actually, it, usually I have like one place I recommend to get it. I have two places on Amazon I recommend to get this because there's two routes with this plant. You can go cheap and long term, or, or let's say cheap and slow. Or you can go quick and fat, uh, quick and expensive. All right, you know the two pick two or two or three. You don't get them all. So um, quick and fat, quick and expensive is you buy live plants and live plants sell for about 20 bucks. And uh, I actually bought four plants, and they're all doing fantastic. And the other way is to buy cheap seeds, which are two dollars and thirty nine cents a pack. And I found two really cool. You want to look at this review if you do gardening and stuff like that, because I found two really cool suppliers in this search. One is called Ohio Heirloom Seeds, and they're on Amazon. And the other one is called Florida Aquatic Nursery. The heirloom seed place does the seeds. The on online nursery does the, the, the live plants. Um, you can get them from either one of these guys, and uh, I bought stuff from both of them. And the, both of them have some really cool stuff beyond just this bloody dog. This is what you need to know if you buy the plants. Day one, you're probably going to be upset. Your plant will come in a box. It'll be well-packaged. It'll look pretty healthy. You'll go plant it. If you're smart, you'll put it in the shade. And it will most likely look like it just dies within about an hour of planting it. The leaves will get... It'll just... That's not mine. I'm like, damn it! I was pissed. It's like, I can't believe this. And then like the next day, the next morning, a couple of leaves were starting to perk up. And I waited until like the end of the next day, kept it in the shade all day. And it had like... You know, each of them had like 20 leaves on them. And they were maybe 10, 15 leaves on them. And they had like two or three of the smaller ones in the center that were standing up, and the rest were just, they were just soft and laying there. And I took a pair of scissors and I cut them off. It's perennial, it grows from the crown. By the end of the week, there was a bunch of new growth on them. And now, like a month later, they're huge. And the best thing is if you buy plants, they propagate from division. I'll probably be able to take each one of those plants and make 10 out of them this fall. Best time to do it is spring or early fall. You just basically dig them up, pull them apart, and put them back in clumps back into the ground. 
and that root system is where they come back from. And there's a, it's a spreading, uh, spreading perennial that spreads from the center outward. I am going to make a bunch more of them and put them all around my in-ground pond because there's places where the marginal edges are wet. It is This stuff tastes great. It's great in salads. It's great sautéed. It's like a lot of greens, though. A lot of greens, especially more wild greens. If you ate just a bowl of it, it seems bitter. And I don't know what it is, but you take like three or four different greens and you mix them together and they all seem bitter. And when you put them together, they don't seem bitter anymore. This fits right in with that, that formula. Uh, it also is really good sautéed. I've done it sautéed with spinach and arugula and sweet potato greens. Oh, my God, it's awesome. Awesome. And it looks really cool. Uh, I have links to both uh, providers. And, again, I really recommend – I have links also to, like, where you can see everything that they sell. Check them out because they're, they're pretty cool. And remember, whenever you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast. That brings us to our song of the day. What a great song for a Friday, man. John, John Adam continues to hit home runs with this. This is by Stevie Nicks, and this is not your 60s Stevie Nicks. This is your 90s coming around again, Stevie Nicks. 91 is when this song came out, and it's called Sometimes It's a Bitch. And when I saw that, I didn't really recognize the song until I started listening to it and then heard the chorus, Sometimes It's a Bitch and Sometimes It's a Breeze. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that song. It was a pretty big hit in the early 90s. And um, but I had no idea like what the history of the song was, so I looked it up on Song Facts, and it's it, Song Facts is a great site by the way, SongFacts.com. So I get a lot of information on background of these songs. Here's what it says about that: John Bon Jovi wrote this for Nix and sang it with her. In the liner notes to her Time Space album, Nix said, When I first heard this song, I really did not quite understand what John was trying to say. But over the two weeks we sang it together at my mic, I started to realize that John, without knowing it, had sort of taken a time machine back 18 years and watched my life, the good parts and the bad. It was not a love song, which of course I had expected it to be. It was much more than that to me. Bon Jovi had picked up on the fact before meeting me, that there was no way he could know what I had lived through without having lived through it with me. So he dreamed. He dreamed about what the notorious Stevie Nicks had been like and what it had been, what it had all done to her. The indulgences, the lifestyle, I felt if he knew nothing else about me, he knew I had a strong instinct to survive. Someday, maybe all the people who did not go through this with us will understand that. Considering the generation we come from, we are very lucky to be alive. I, it, there's a little melodrama and a little drama queen there, I, which you, you need to, Stevie Nicks. Come on, you'd expect it. Um, I think that you you have to take the we're lucky to be alive in context. Uh, Stevie Nicks is 69 years old now. I think so. If your generation would be anybody from let's say uh, 50 to 80 right now would be that generation. Um, and, and I think you know most people are 50 to 80. When like, I'm not lucky to be alive. What the hell are you talking about? I think if you were big time stars in the 60s and 70s if you look at how many of those people went down from drugs and other things that's I think what she's actually saying there. but the whole thing that like Bon Jovi wrote this per it perfectly fits me this perfectly fits you Stevie because it perfectly fits everybody I mean you did a great job of the song but let's let's not over dramatize this this song is life this is why like you know like certain mental illnesses become in vogue and I'm not going to be I'm not putting anybody down that actually has bipolar disorder okay I'm not I'm just saying that when like one of these illnesses gets talked about I think this is actually very disrespectful to people that do suffer from the actual illness all of a sudden oh I'm bipolar I'm bipolar like it becomes in vogue to be bipolar 
Well, if you mean that sometimes things are really great and then sometimes really suck, and sometimes you really can kick ass and sometimes you just don't feel like doing anything, that's not bipolar. That's being alive. That's being alive. That's if you're doing anything that's meaningful, sometimes it's a bitch. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you work your ass off and you fail. And you just feel like, why can't I catch a break? Why is this so hard? Why does everything I do have to be so hard? Because it's worth doing. And when, you, when you're willing to accept that sometimes it's a bitch long enough, you find a lot more times that it becomes a breeze. This song's about life. Great song for your Friday afternoon. Hope you enjoyed today's show. We sure covered a lot. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
在。